0: Good morning, everyone. The uh, time seems to have arrived for our final session, and while I think we all have a little feeling of sorrow at parting, those things just have to be. I haven't found any way to stay at Bible school all year yet. This morning, in discussing the final phase of our class on the doctrinal history of the Christadelphians, we're going to have to cover considerable territory which will probably be more complex than anything we have done so far. Uh, there will also be tendencies on the part of every one of us to identify with the situation because we're going to try to bring it down to our own times, and therefore we will find that we have certain prejudices, perhaps, on this subject. I promise you I'm going to try to treat it As objectively as I can, I too belong to a certain group of Christadelphians known as the Unamended Fellowship. And therefore, perhaps I can be said to be a little prejudiced on the subject also. I have my opinions on it. But I'll try to be as objective as I can, and I hope that if my objectivity offends some of the things you believe, uh, you will allow for it. This I would hope with all my heart. There's no desire to be offensive, nor is there any desire to overturn things which we have stood for. We left off yesterday uh, discussing just briefly the fact that a new subject was coming into focus on the horizon. <coughs> uh, we read John 12:48, <coughs> which we pointed out was interpreted in two different ways by certain groups in the Brotherhood uh we left ourselves however in britain historically where the uh free life controversy the renunciationist uh, controversy and the partial inspiration controversy took place and we point out that neither of those had too great an effect directly upon the christadelphians in the united states indirectly it was to have uh a sweeping effect and i'd like to keep you to keep that in mind for without a full awareness of this basic principle which was disputed in the renunciationist controversy, succeeding problems which arose of a doctrinal nature do not always make sense. In particular, and I must acknowledge I'm oversimplifying it, there have been reams and reams of material written upon the subject. If you go through it in a lifetime, you'll be doing very well. But I'm oversimplifying to give you the gist of it. And we have pointed out that the scriptures in Romans, the fifth chapter, particularly the 18th verse, dealing with, uh, therefore, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, was part of the problem which arose then, and even today is part of our problem. The, cor- the corollary to that statement is in the third verse of the eighth chapter of Romans, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, It would be untrue for me to say the entire doctrinal difficulties arose over those two verses. But if you want a nutshell picture of where the controversy impinges greatest, I think this is a very fair statement. The. Responsibility controversy on the surface, however, does not appear to be involved with either of those two verses. Ultimately, you will see that it is very, very very, much involved with those two verses. Coming back across the Atlantic to the United States, we would point out that after Dr. Thomas had passed from the scene of his labors, a number of brethren uh, became in evidence who uh, took some leadership in the affairs of the Brotherhood in this country. There was one brotherhood. There was no division of any kind over here. The partial inspiration division did not cause one. There have always been, in ecclesias problems which had to be dealt with according to the principles of fellowship uh, taught in the Scripture. And there was then and there is today these same problems. But any general dissociation seems to have been fairly absent at this point. Brethren on this side of the Atlantic read with great interest the controversial material which was uh, emanating from Britain. It, uh, in short, was, a, it was an educational period for the Brotherhood over here. I would also point out that a brother came on the scene over here who was later to exert a very powerful influence on the Christadelphians in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th. This man was Brother Thomas Williams. Brother Williams was born in Wales. He uh, immigrated with his wife and children to this country at a moderate age of life, and they settled here and put their shoulders to the wheel and became a very strong influence in the truth. About 1885, Brother Williams founded the Christadelphian Advocate, which is with us to this day, and hopefully is dedicated to the same principles which he upheld. The work which he did was largely of a of a a, a work for the promulgation of the truth. He would give public lectures. He was tireless in his effort to go around and lecture to the Brotherhood. In the course of doing this, he oftentimes got involved in some of the local problems and tried to the best of his ability to lend his aid and his good reasoning ability to the solution of certain problems which would arise from time to time, just as the Corinthian believers leaned on the apostle Paul Though with much better cause, because the Apostle Paul was inspired, so many of the American ecclesias would tend to lean on a brother of the stature of Brother Thomas Williams and to co- counsel with him in problems which arose. It's interesting to note, and in his writings he makes this statement, that he very early in his life had very decided opinions upon this matter of what we have just uh, signified as the enlightened rejector question. It was no big problem at that time. It was more of a philosophical discussion. And quite frankly, that's about where you would expect that it ought to be, because what happens to a person who hears the truth, listens to it, is called upon to accept it, and decides not to accept it, is of very little concern to someone who has accepted the truth. What the Lord chooses to do with that individual is, strictly speaking, the Lord's business. It is not ours. Uh, If the scriptures of truth are very crystal clear upon the subject, then we certainly should uh, accept what the Scripture teaches. But the Scripture is not always as clear as many people think it is upon what the Lord intends to do with a person who rejects his offer of salvation. It is clear that it's wrong and that God is displeased with it. I think the third chapter of John is uh, an unmistakable evidence of this fact. We shall, we will not go into the doctrinal details of it, but we would state that uh, right here but whether it is a serious enough offense that this individual should be brought forth out of his grave who has never been uh, baptized into the name of Christ and brought before some sort of a tribunal, whether at the judgment seat of Christ or at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, different opinions existed on that point, uh, is a question. And the evidence in the Scripture has been very much strained, to make it appear to be an absolutely positive doctrinal point. I think the evidence that the I think the evidence that the scripture is not too clear on this is the fact that many brethren have tried to bring in vital doctrines in an effort to prove one way or the other and positively what's going to happen to this person who rejects the gospel. We'll come to that in a moment. For the historical aspect of the thing brother williams uh, when the advocate was founded from time to time would insert articles in the advocate uh, more of a matter of interest in any doctrinal position he was trying to maintain and this was uh, received with varying degrees of enthusiasm by the brotherhood at large undivided as it was at that time depending on what your own personal convictions on the subject were in brother williams case he was convinced uh, that there was no scriptural evidence to indicate that the enlightened rejector would come before the judgment seat of Christ, and he said so, not to the point of being obnoxious or to the point of making it a a bone of controversy, but he stated it, and uh, this was his conviction. Uh, Brother Williams also recognized that there were certain doctrinal principles which impinge upon this, and he recognized, for example, that... As we have noticed in this, and this is where you'll find the chapters in Romans that we've just mentioned come into the picture, Brother Williams, of course, was very firmly convinced that uh, judgment came upon all men to condemnation because of one man's sin. Adam's sin, he said, brought condemnation upon the race. He did not coin the term, but he very vigorously used the term Adamic condemnation to describe that situation in which the race finds itself. He also recognized the fact that to accept Christ and to be baptized believing the gospel resulted in a transition, a change of relationship in which a believer changed from being under the condemnation of death in Adam to a sentence to newness of life in Christ Jesus. And that while there was no physical change in his nature and he would die just the same as anyone who hadn't been baptized, he had the assurance, the absolute assurance, and the scripture is not the least bit vague on this point. He had the absolute assurance that he would rise from the dead should he fall asleep before the Lord returned. This was clearly taught in the scripture and there was never any doubt nor was it ever in controversy. So, reasoning from this, Brother Williams did feel... That the case of the enlightened rejector seemed to be taken care of by the laws of the Lord, in other words, by the commandments of God himself. That unless you accepted Christ, you had no assurance of anything but death. If you accepted Christ in the approved method, you had the absolute assurance that death was not the finality, that resurrection was certain for you, and the appearance before the judgment seat of Christ, where you would be judged according to the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And your reward from that point on would be determined by your deeds, uh, your probationary life in the truth, which you lived after coming into Christ. These were principles that he taught, and very forcefully, and they were warmly received. They were in almost perfect harmony with the teachings of Brother Roberts on the other side of the Atlantic. The only difference being that Brother Roberts, uh, following the lead of Dr. Thomas, took the position that he thought the enlightened rejecter would be raised. He he too was not adamant upon this point, although he was pretty forceful about it. Uh, He did not believe the question should be made a test of fellowship, that brethren should withdraw from one another over it, never did for the remainder of his lifetime. And as long as he lived, it was not made a bone of contention in that sense of the words. But it did come to be made a bone of contention in a way over which he had no control. And this was a very unfortunate episode. Uh, I'd now call your attention and call you uh, back to the thoughts we had in the last uh, class, that in the renunciationist controversy, equally forceful in dealing with this controversy with Brother Roberts himself was Brother J.J. Andrew. Brother Andrew wrote forcefully on this uh, subject. He wrote well. Uh, and at this time, he was in complete harmony with Brother Roberts, including his belief, as I read from his uh, book, uh, Jesus Christ and Him Crucified, in Proposition 5 that I read to you yesterday, and I would like to repeat it today, that resurrection affects those only who are responsible to God by a knowledge of his revealed will. That all these, whether just or unjust, faith or unfaithful, will be raised from the dead, at the second appearing of Christ, and will with the living appear in a corruptible nature before the judgment seat of Christ, to give an account of themselves and to receive in the body according to what they have done, whether it be good or bad. This was his view then. He felt that knowledge was the thing that was going to guarantee that you stood before that judgment seat of Christ, not simply the fact that you were baptized. You would not have a chance of salvation, however, unless you were baptized. I don't think any Christadelphian has ever maintained that. So, the situation remained thus until the early part of the 1890s. And very suddenly, so suddenly, in fact, that even Brother Williams was caught uh, unaware of what was happening. He had a very warm regard for Brother Andrew's uh, writings. Uh, He was a very brilliant uh, expositor of the truth. Some of his writings have been very well received by the Brotherhood and uh, are deserving of our respect and our, our study. But along about 1890, he produced a pamphlet which was uh, distributed to the Brotherhood very suddenly, and it was the result of a complete change of viewpoint, which he had. And it is extremely important that you realize why he changed his viewpoint, because failure to realize this will uh, be cloud the issue in your mind, and you will have difficulty wondering perhaps why... Today we do things as we do. Brother Andrew changed his views on the fate of the enlightened rejecter of the gospel. And he did so for a reason which is more complex than I am prepared to explain to you at this point. But I would point out, again, oversimplifying and giving to you an encapsulated form like the Reader's Digest is professes to do, he looked at the sentence which God pronounced on Adam. And as you know, it said that in the day thou eatest thereof, the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, thou shalt surely die. And he reasoned with this, and he said, that death, since it affects the majority of mankind, and since when they die, they are deceased, and they shall never live again, that death could be placed in contradistinction to the reward of the righteous, which is eternal life. And we could say this is eternal death and this is eternal life. Now, please bear in mind, this is reasoning with the Scripture. I would call your attention to the fact that there's nothing in the Scripture that says the sentence pronounced upon Adam was eternal death. But Brother Andrew reasoned that it was. And having reasoned this, He then came to the conclusion that if a man was born under the sentence of eternal death, nothing could possibly bring him out of a grave unless he changed his relationship from Adam to Christ. And he asserted this, and I would like to read it to you in his own words and the way in which this was expressed. The little booklet I'm going to read to you from now is familiar to you all. It's still available in print. It's called The Blood of the Covenant by J.J. and. I would like to direct your attention to page 38. Uh, The whole book could be read to illustrate the point I'm making, but this one illustrates it probably and brings it into focus about as clearly as any portion of the book. I quote, Are not the sins of the unfaithful in Christ as effective to lock the gates of the grave as the sins of unjustified Gentiles? A word of definition. Unfaithful, In Christ means a believer who has accepted Christ, but who has not lived the truth. Unjustified Gentile means one who has not accepted Christ. And he raises this question, not so much because the question has ever been in dispute, but to illustrate another point. His answer is no. These two classes are in an entirely different position. Gentiles were condemned in Eden, and when they die under that condemnation, "...their eternal doom is sealed. But the sins of the unfaithful in Christ have not yet been the subject of condemnation. Therefore, they must rise, rise in the judgment. If they did not, their judgment would be anticipated, and the judgment seat of Christ would thereby be made void. When they arrive at that judgment seat, they are free from the condemnation of Adam's offense and without any divine verdict on their probationary conduct." for the latter alone they will be condemned and their sins will then be as effective to keep them in the grave as is condemnation in adam to prevent the resurrection of unjustified gentiles now notice the force that he puts on this principle of eternal death and the and the the, the rule of condemnation which was the sentence of condemnation which was passed in eden he says that the judgment upon unfaithful believers at the judgment seat will lock them in their graves by the second death, just as surely as unbaptized Gentiles are locked in their grave at this moment by the sentence of condemnation in Eden. Now, I would point out that this was not a universal view in the Brotherhood. This this was a challenge to, uh, among others, Dr. Thomas's viewpoints. And it certainly was a challenge to Brother Roberts' viewpoints. And as we'll see in a moment, it was also a challenge to Brother William's viewpoint. And if this comes as a surprise to you, I think it's part of the thing we should be made aware of. Alright? Carrying on further, he says, Cannot sinners in Adam, still under condemnation for the Edenic offense, be brought from the dead to be punished for their own misdeeds? And his answer is no. Such a proceeding would be equivalent to slaying the slain. It would be condemning to death men already doomed to death. Is a work of superrogation such as this compatible with the dignity and equity of divine majesty? I think that briefly and without, <clears throat> without uh, beclouding the issue uh, by giving us a lot of words to discuss, I think that sets forth the principle which Brother Andrew uh, brought forth at this time. Now, what was the result of this? Well, the result was twofold. First of all, the extremely forceful manner in which it was expressed uh, antagonized brethren who in the past were willing to leave this question an open one. Now we have someone bringing in uh, a principle which had not been taught by Christadelphians in general up to this time, and it was being forced with such vigor that the principle suddenly assumed the proportion of a false doctrine to many otherwise sincere believers. I, I think this is the only fair way of viewing this. Uh, we, maybe our sympathies are with Brother Andrew and, and what he was trying to get across, but the fact remains that what happened to the Brotherhood at this time was uh, as if you had exploded an atom bomb in it. Uh, add this to the fact that the ecclesia, of which Brother Andrew was a member, in Britain, uh, amended its constitution. They were so convinced of what Brother Andrew was teaching that they amended their constitution and, and uh, entered into this a statement to the effect that anyone who did not believe that the unbaptized Gentile could not be raised to the judgment seat of Christ was unworthy of fellowship. Well, of course, uh, this was outright division. And irrespective of how much we may revere the thinking and the and the reasoning of Brother Andrew, we must conclude that this is the surest way to, to uh, cause brothers and sisters to lose heart and lose faith in the truth and perhaps to desert it entirely because of the controversy which arose from that. Not only so, but such a, uh, an action invariably brings a reaction in the flesh. And this reaction was not very long in coming. Brother Roberts, of course, was very disturbed. He had worked side by side with Brother Andrew for so many years. They had uh, worked as soldiers of the Lord side by side in in uh, refuting the errors of the free life renunciationist controversy. And now Brother Andrew is taking one of the very principles which they use to defend the truth, in the renunciationist controversy, the principle that there is a sentence of condemnation resting on all mankind. And by a slight twist of his reasoning, he is using this in an effort to prove that you can't bring an enlightened rejecter up. It's impossible, according to the laws of God. In return, Brother Roberts wrote a pamphlet. Uh, it's been reprinted today, and it's available in California, uh, entitled The Blood of Christ. And in this, he... He uh, takes Brother Andrew to task. I think that any broad-minded Christadelphian, uh, don't get me wrong, not a broad Christadelphian, but a broad-minded Christadelphian, uh, owes it to both Brother Andrew, Brother Williams, Brother, and Brother Roberts to read Brother Roberts' rejoinder to this. And so if you feel disposed to obtain a copy of this pamphlet, I think you would be interested to see how Brother Roberts handles it. And Brother Roberts was no slouch when it came to handling the subject of the truth. And he, ge- he brings some very pertinent points there, some of which uh, deserve to be considered. Nevertheless, uh, it didn't solve the issue. It drew the battle lines. That's the sad part of it. We find brother in opposition to brother and taking sides. We see a situation building up in which fellowship is invoked, The principles in the scripture of fellowship are invoked in a new situation in which anyone who is in sympathy with Brother so-and-so, out with him. We don't want him in the fellowship anymore. And this led to a very distressing situation in the brotherhood, which probably need never have happened, and wouldn't have happened in this country, I'm convinced, the way Brother Williams was handling the subject. I think if Brother Williams had been allowed to continue, this is like saying what would have happened if if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten of the forbidden fruit. We don't know. But if the situation had not developed in Britain as it did, one wonders if this thing may not have been very thoroughly discussed in the brotherhood, and the brotherhood, like in the partial inspiration controversy and in the renunciations controversy, would have moved into a sound position on the basis of the best reasoning which was brought forth on the subject. But when emotions are stirred and when the gauntlet is thrown down, and battle lines are drawn, then brethren cease to think constructively and instead think with party spirit. And this becomes very regrettable. And without digressing from the story, which we're going to continue with, we'd say, and that party spirit, unfortunately, is with us to this day. And this is what reunion is all about in an effort to try to, to bring a termination to this party attitude. All right, coming back to the actual problem. The Birmingham Central Ecclesia, of which Brother Roberts was a member, was, of course, uh, quick to spring to his defense. So were most of the Christadelphians in Britain. So were most of the Christadelphians in the United States. They were outraged at the controversy which Brother Andrew had thrust upon the Brotherhood. Uh, I think it's only fair to Brother Roberts to point out, and if you should get hold of the book, The Blood of Christ. It would be well for you to note his introductory words. He starts off by expressing his respect for Brother Andrew's uh, great understanding of the scripture, and he says, your pamphlet, the blood of the covenant, sets forth many things which deserve to be placed before the brotherhood and which are true. But he says, I dislike the use you have made of these very important truths which you are setting forth. And he then proceeds to delineate what these things are that he feels that Brother Andrew has misused certain great truths for. Again, when I say "misuse," I hope you will recognize that uh, I'm quoting Brother Roberts. I'm not necessarily expressing an opinion on that point. So at this point, the, the inevitability of a division was very great, but Brother Roberts didn't want a division. He fought to maintain the integrity of the brotherhood. He was taken from the scene of his labors not long after this. And in due course, those who followed him, the editorial chair of the Christadelphian magazine, the mantle which he had received, Brother Roberts had received from Dr. Thomas, was passed on to Brother C.C. Walker. And Brother Walker was not able to resist the mounting indignation in the brotherhood of the attitude which they had been disturbed by, by this accident of Brother Williams and the uh, Ecclesia of which he was a member. So it was not long before the Constitution of the Birmingham Ecclesia was amended, and not only the Constitution, but their statement of faith. And into that statement of faith was added a clause which made certain that it was clearly stated, well, quite frankly, it isn't clearly stated, but it is stated That the enlightened rejector would be among those who come forth from the judgment seat of Christ, to the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for their rejection of the truth. And they in turn said that unless you accept our position, we won't fellowship you. So, uh, if you will forgive me for seeming disrespect, we now are faced with a situation in Britain where one little boy says, if you don't do it my way, I won't play. And the other little boy to retaliate says, well, if you won't do it my way, I won't play. And this was most regrettable. And the Brotherhood was the sufferer for this unfortunate situation. In the meantime, Brother Williams, being one of the leading uh, brethren in the United States and being the editor of The Advocate, found himself in somewhat of a dilemma. It was necessary for him to do something in hope that division could be avoided in this country as it had taken place in Britain, and yet to repudiate what Brother Andrew had written was something which he could not do, for in many points he agreed with Brother Andrew, many but not all. He certainly agreed that he did not believe the enlightened rejectors should be raised, but more particularly, and unlike Brother Andrew at this point, he did not agree that the Question should be made a test of fellowship, and that brethren should separate from brethren on this point. And he died believing this. He gave his life in an effort to try to undo the harm which had been done by it. In writing upon the subject, it was necessary for him to speak out his views on the enlightened rejector, which he did very forcefully, very, very well. He did it from the platform. He gave some uh, lectures in Britain at a place called Barnsbury Hall, an ecclesia that wanted information on this matter, and his lecture, which was an outstanding one, was reproduced by him and printed up in pamphlet form and became available to the Brotherhood in the form of a pamphlet called Adamic Condemnation. The pamphlet is still extant. It is also incorporated in the book recently published by the Richmond Hall Ecclesia, the collected works of Doctor Th- of Brother Thomas Williams. And for those of you who would like to go into more detail than we can possibly do here, I urge it upon you as very excellent reading. I would like to, though it may be painful to do so, I would like to establish a point here because it's a very serious point. Quite frankly, if we follow the path which Brother Andrew took, not necessarily the views that he took, but the pathway which those views led to, we will find ourselves in the position, very much as he was, of refusing to fellowship anybody that doesn't believe exactly as we do. On the other hand, Brother Williams thought, and the Advocate magazine proclaimed, and still proclaims, that The condemnation which came upon Adam is not irreversible if God chooses to do it. Brother William's contention was there is no law that locks a man in the grave irreversibly that that God can't reverse, but that simply the Scripture does not seem to teach that God intends to reverse that law for a person called the enlightened rejecter. This was a much more moderate position and continued to allow for the situation which had existed before this division was thrust upon the brotherhood by Brother Andrew, and would permit brethren to meet together once more, even if they differed upon the enlightened rejector question, provided that they did not differ upon the basic principles of the nature of man and the sacrifice of Christ, which could be impinged upon by this point. I'd like to read a section, uh, and this involves another book which was published rather recently, The Life and Works of Thomas Williams, which the current Advocate Committee has thought wise to bring before you, before the uh, Brotherhood. And it, it illustrates the point of what the divergence was. So severe was Brother Andrew's position, and many are not aware of this, that he withdrew from Thomas Williams for being too lenient. So this is the tragedy of the whole thing. The central what is now called the Central Fellowship, but which was then called the Amended Fellowship, uh, aligned with the Birmingham Ecclesia and amended their statement of faith to exclude from fellowship anyone who did not believe the enlightened rejector would be raised. By contrast, those who could not accept so stringent a position found themselves, in this country at least, aligned with Brother Thomas Williams, who took the position that we are not going to make this thing a test of fellowship. We are going to leave it like it was before all this happened. And for this, he bore the full brunt of the fury of the Birmingham Ecclesia who said, unless you believe as we do, you're with Brother Andrew. When in actual fact, Brother Andrew said, unless you become as extreme as we are and agree to disfellowship everyone who does who does believe the Enlightenment re- rejecter would be raised, then we can't have anything to do with you. So this is known as being caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. You're wrong if you do, and you're wrong if you don't. But this is the position that our unamended fellowship has taken from that day to this. We decline to take a position of fellowship upon the fate of the enlightened rejector. We do take a position of fellowship upon the doctrines which have been impinged upon by that subject. Now, to show you the difference which existed between Brother Andrew and Brother Williams, and I don't do this with any joy, but I think it's part of the knowledge of the of the situation that we need to know. On page 157 of uh, Life and Works of Thomas Williams, you'll find, uh, well, it starts before that. It starts on page 152, and there are several pages here, of an interchange between Brother Williams and Brother Andrews on their differences. One portion of it I would like to read because I think it illustrates the part. It's a series of questions. The questions are raised by Brother Andrew and answered by Brother Williams. Here's the question Brother Andrew raises. When in London, you, Brother Williams, partially recognized this truth, but you also taught that God may or will raise some Gentiles for punishment or for testimony. In support thereof, you referred to the historic cases narrated in the Old and New Testament, but you overlooked the fact that that these do not contain a single instance of a restoration to life for punishment. It is also necessary to notice that the word resurrection is never applied to them. In the case of the widow's son, it is simply said the soul of the child came into him again and revived. Of the Shunammite's son, the man who touched the bones of Elisha, the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised, similar statements are made, but none of them contain the word resurrection. Brother Williams' answer to this was, "...if you mean by this truth that the resurrection, which is a subject matter of the gospel, is through Jesus only, and that only those in covenant relationship are the subjects thereof, I not only recognized this when I was in London, but long before you did, and when you were opposed to it. Indeed, I recognized it at my immersion in 1864, as I told Brother Roberts. And as I told Brother Roberts, learned it through reading twelve lectures." When I first heard that you were discussing the question in London, I concluded from my knowledge of your position previously that you were contending for your own your old position. And it was under this impression that I commenced reading the blood of the covenant, by which to my surprise I learned of your change. What I never saw, and I still fail to see, how the resurrection through Jesus could make it impossible for God to raise some to life incidentally when his purpose required it. Therefore it was not until the innovation of making the rejector resurrection a first principle by raising it to a test of fellowship that I was forced into the defensive. Uh, the remainder of it uh, deals somewhat also with the questions that he raised in his previous in Brother Andrew's question. No, I did not overlook the fact that the historic cases of the resurrection were not for punishment. For I answered you and others upon this very aspect of the question. Have you forgotten, have you forgotten raising this objection in your house during our interview when you asked, when I asked you, will you admit that God has the right and power to raise anyone in the future as in the past for any purpose, barring for punishment? To this you quickly answered affirmatively. And when you were interrupted by one present, you withdrew the answer. To play upon the words, not for punishment, is to beg the question. This is a, this is a fallacy of logic. For the principle upon which you base your claim for the impossibility of raising any in the future as in the past is that resurrection can only take place in the everlasting covenant. Now, do you mean to say that all those cases you cite were in this covenant? I do not think you would so presume. Therefore, this resurrection to life was not dependent upon the principle upon which the resurrection through Jesus was based. The facts compel you to admit this, and therefore your impossibility claim for the future is upset by the facts of the past for if god could raise some in the past outside the everlasting covenant without infringing upon that covenant he can do so in the future being compelled to admit this the purpose in view in any such case whether for a manifestation of power to heal a broken-hearted money mother or for punishment it is not for us to dictate let us leave this to him and not circumscribe his prerogative Surely you would not deny the resurrection of Lazarus because the word resurrection does not happen to be used in this case. Was he not a subject of resurrection or a standing again in life? When Paul says that women receive their dead raised to life again, will you deny these dead were the subjects of a resurrection? I am not denying the doctrinal meaning of the resurrection involved in the gospel, and there is no conflict of testimony between the incidental cases and the one great event of resurrection. Allow each its proper place, and there will be no contradiction. You'd have to read much more to see the, just uh, the thrust of the argument involved, but it illustrates the point. Sufficient to state that from that day to this, we have the Christadelphian Brotherhood divided into more than one section. And because of the presence of the, um, of the amendment in the amended statement of faith, The test rests with them. We have never amended our statement of faith. It is the same as the one which was in use before the division occurred, and I would hope that we would not do so now. The point to be made, however, in all of this is that the principles involving the nature of man and baptism were brought into this controversy. Rightly or wrongly, they were brought in. And when certain brethren in the Amended Fellowship, and believe me, this is not all of the Amended Fellowship, when certain brethren in the Amended Fellowship realized that Brother Andrew hung his impossibility of the resurrection of the Enlightened Rejector upon the Edenic sentence, a new doctrine began to be taught in which there was no Edenic sentence. That simply man was made mortal because of sin and that baptism has nothing whatever to do with the sentence in Eden. In fact, there is no sentence outside of Eden, according to this theory. Now, this is a serious departure from the principles established in the renunciationist controversy. That's why I say the renunciationist controversy should be understood even though it's dark history, because it leads to a principle which was established clearly and reiterated, Dr. Thomas had already established it, but it was reiterated and reaffirmed by the brotherhood of that time, and so today it is still a principle with us that is reaffirmed from time to time. Those who believed contrary to this principle of the sentence resting upon mankind and the abrogation, as the statement of faith speaks of it, of that sentence as the result of passing through the waters of baptism... Uh, have placed a barrier between ourselves and some who believe in the resurrection of the enlightened rejector, which is not so easily overcome. And some of you may have wondered why reunion committees can go to Chicago and meet time after time and come away without an answer, and this is the reason for it. We have other problems. I would also say, however, that the writings of Brother Andrew, though they're very clear on this point, have led to an error amongst a few of the people of our group. Because we like to think of ourselves as a homogenous, well-knit unit, we oftentimes tend to overlook this. But there is a definite tendency from time to time for people to overlook the fact that while it is true we are baptized so that we may abrogate the law of sin and death which brought mortality in Eden, that's not the only reason we're baptized either. Some of the amended brethren, to get around our position, said the only reason we're baptized is for the remission of our personal sins. An equal error on our side has been to say, on the case of a few, that the only reason we're baptized is to deliver us from the sentence of condemnation in Eden, that personal sins don't enter into it. The Scripture doesn't teach this. Neither did Brother Roberts, neither did Brother Williams, neither did Brother Andrew. And I think this needs to be viewed very very carefully and very squarely. The issue is never going to be settled, probably, in the minds of everyone, but we need to home in on certain basic principles. And our statement of faith is designed to do this. This is one reason why I would, ha- I would hate to see any changes made in our statement, imperfect though it may be as a docu- document. The fact remains that it does delineate and clearly state the, the principles involving the nature of man and the principles involving the setting aside of the sentence of condemnation, which God imposed upon Adam and Eve, and which by descent have passed upon all of us. And so for that reason, if we cling closely to that, I think we're on very safe territory. And if we do not uh, allow ourselves to be so narrowed by our Uh, belief on this subject that we fail to recognize that there are also brethren who believe the enlightened rejector would be raised some of whom are in our own fellowship but who also are perfectly sound upon these principles involving the sentence of condemnation and baptism for it. In as simple language as I can I've tried to bring this point to you and I'd like to leave it at that we could discuss it all day and for next week but if you would like to study it further, as I say, I've, as we've gone along, I've listed some of these booklets where these things are available. We are very fortunate at the moment that much of the information is available through the uh, selected works of Thomas Williams, the book that the Richmond Hall Ecclesia has republished, published, and of course, the life and work of Thomas Williams. You'll find it quite interesting if you'd like to pursue this line of history a little further and to see the doctrinal reasons for it. The time is drawing short. There's one more thing I need to show you, and I won't say then you will be postgraduate students on the question of the doctrinal history of the United States, but at least you'll have a little better picture of it. After there was a separation in the body of Christadelphians, and I say it with great sorrow, both sides, not simultaneously, but at some time during the last 75 years, have found a question arising in their midst, on the very same questions which were the bone of of contention in this renunciationist controversy. But there's a new twist to it. Some of you may have heard the name thrown around, and I dislike epithets like this. They call it the clean flesh theory. Both fellowships have been troubled by this. A division occurred in the Central Fellowship in the 1920s called the Berean Controversy. The Berean Brethren were trying to reaffirm the principles which were taught by Brother Roberts and Dr. Thomas on the nature of man and baptism, very much as we would uphold them. And there were those who followed the writings of a brother by the name of A.D. Strickler, who wrote a pamphlet called Out of Darkness into Light. It's out of print, and I don't see any reason to resurrect it, in which some principles were set aside uh, in order to, first of all, to justify their position on the enlightened rejector question, and secondly, to uh eliminate certain features of the atonement, which we feel are very vital. Strange to state, almost identically the same views were enunciated in our own fellowship a few years later by a brother who was very greatly respected in our fellowship. And since his family is with us today, I don't care to mention his name, but he wrote a pamphlet upon the subject. I have it with me, and I would like to read a brief paragraph from it. It's entitled, Sin, a Treatise. To those of you who are familiar with the brother, right away you know who he is. This need not be commented upon. In this pamphlet, you will find a very interesting statement. Let me get my page number straight here. On page 70, the dissertation revolves around an interpretation of that same Romans 8.3 which was the bone of contention in the renunciationist controversy. And if you read Edward Turney's works, and most of you don't have access to it, and I'm surely not going to reprint that one either, but if you read his works, you'll find that his explanation of this is almost exactly the same as the brother we're going to read right now. And also, so was Brother Strickler's views, very similar to this. Listen to this and see if you can follow his reasoning here. Uh, that should begin on page 69. The word likeness. Let's see where that word comes from. In Romans 8, 3, you will see that for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. The question is, what does that word likeness mean? Does it mean he came in sinful flesh or that he came in flesh that was just similar to it? but it wasn't sinful flesh. That's the crux of the matter right there, and it has been in most of these controversies. Here's the wording. I quote, We cannot leave this subject without giving some attention to the word likeness as here used. It is from the Greek word homooma, and occurs six times in the New Testament. It is rendered likeness three times, made like unto, shape, similitude, each once. From the use made of it by the sacred writers, we shall be able to determine its meaning. The apostle Paul used it five out of the six times it occurs in the New Testament. In Romans 1:23, we read, "An image made like to corruptible man." Uh, in chapter 5:14, we have those who sin not after the similitude of Adam's transgressiveness, which means the likeness of Adam's transgression. In chapter 6:4, we are told of having been planted together in the likeness of his death in baptism. Then comes the passage under consideration in Philippians 2:7 Christ Jesus, while appearing in the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. In Revelation 9:7 it is said the shapes of the locusts seen by John were like unto horses prepared for battle. And he cites several other uses of the word which we will skip over since time is short. He says, retaining this idea, when we come to the word in Romans eight three, we may appropriately say that God sent His Son in the resemblance of flesh of sin, not in the likeness of sinful flesh, but in the resemblance of flesh of sin. His flesh was not flesh of sin itself, in the sense that it had committed sin. For neither in thought, word, nor act did He cause His flesh to sin. For neither in thought, word, nor act. Uh, therefore, though sin in the likeness or resemblance of flesh of sin. His flesh was not flesh of sin itself for the reason that it did no sin. This is manifest when we consider the fact also set forth with great clearness in the scripture that when Jesus bore sins in his own body upon the tree, it was not his sins that he bore, but those of others, our sins. It is here that he, the sinless one, made the great sacrifice for the sins of the sinners. He received stripes and wounds such as were the desert of sinners. Uh, this illustrates the point of departure, and as I pointed out earlier in this little discussion we've been having, when you come up against a situation where there is some doubt about a theory being correct, watch for at least two suspicious things. When someone assigns a meaning to a word in the text and then bases their, their whole conclusions on that premise, you want to watch out. This is just such an example, and it's been repeatedly done. The other angle is when someone comes up with a real good theory to them and then proceeds to lift text out of the Scripture to prove the theory. Watch out. You're apt to have a problem. But if you can get the Scripture to interpret itself, you're on very safe grounds. This is the principle of reasoning correctly with the Scriptures. Well, our discussions have brought us to the point that we now see that even though the the brotherhood was divided on the responsibility question, and that the responsibility question had some complications beside the simple question of whether a man who has heard the truth and rejected it will be raised and judged. And having seen that both sides of that responsibility division also had problems with this so-called clean flesh theory, and that's where it gets its word, he did not have sinful flesh, but he was made in the resemblance of the flesh in which sin was manifest. That's the difference, and thus was called clean flesh. This leads to some very serious differences on the question of the atonement, including the fact that it is denied that Jesus Christ needed to offer for his own redemption as well as his brethren, which is strictly contrary to Scripture, and thus was rejected by our fellowship and by many in the Central Fellowship. We go forward into the years ahead, should the Lord's coming be delayed that long, uh, wondering sometimes what new problem will strike the Brotherhood. Already there are evidences of things that may be in the offing. We trust that if we do so, if we do have such problems that will confront us, that we will at least be as careful in dealing with these problems, not on an emotional plane, not agreeing to disagree just because we don't want to discuss the matter and get into arguments, but to really carefully and scripturally rightly divide the word of truth and endeavor to find God's answer for the problems which may yet confront us. We have, however, a very serious obligation in all of this, even as the brethren who preceded us had a very serious obligation. And that obligation is that are our children and our grandchildren to be permitted to have the truth as it was delivered to us. Not watered down, not adulterated, not changed, but the truth as it was discovered in the 19th century after having been lost for so long. Whether it is to be this way or not depends on many of us who are sitting here today as to whether we strive to rightly divide the word of truth. Nobody asked you to get up and battle for these things, to be a leader and tell everybody how to do it. That was one of the worst problems we had the real solution to the problem is that if every believer, no matter how humble your station in life or whether you think you are a good student of the Bible or not, to use the principles of the Scripture and decide for yourself after weighing the evidence, like the Bereans of old, search the Scripture to see if these things be so. If they are not so, reject them, even if it's your own father or mother who puts them forth. Jesus said, if anyone, uh, if anyone values his father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. And I think that's a pretty hard test for anyone to have to go through. But it, it could conceivably be that way. And if you're prepared to dedicate yourself to the teachings of the truth rather than to the personalities of life, then hopefully that question which Jesus answered, "Shall I find faith in the earth when I come?" may yet be answered in the affirmative. I appreciate your attention. It has been a rather abstract subject. Uh, you've been very nice about it, very helpful in your comments to me. And, Lord willing, I hope we will be privileged to discuss other subjects sometime in the near future. Thank you.